problem about inflation or, or the advantage of inflation is that usually people don't realize what's happening or they realize it too late. So that's why you need economists. You figured out the easiest way is to decrease real salaries by inflating away the purchasing power of the people. Economics unites and politics separates us. And I, I think that's uh, really one of the best ways uh, to express it. And you will see that with any politicians who is pro-Bitcoin, people will be put off Bitcoin because they dislike the politician. And, and that's really the big issue with politics. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Spanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. Today, we're joined by Rahim Tagazadegan, the last Austrian economist in the Austrian school. He's written more than a dozen books and is the founder of the private university Scholarium in Vienna, where the Austrian school is kept alive in its original spirit. In our conversation, among other things, we discuss the history of Austrian economics, why Keynesian economics is a scam, and of course, the role of Bitcoin in enabling a future based on real trust. Get ready for this great episode, but before we start, we'd like to quickly remind you that the best way to support the show is to send us a boost or stream us some sats on a value-for-value -value podcasting app like Fountain. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, check out Fountain if you haven't already. You can earn sats by listening to podcasts, and you can support your favorite shows through Value for Value. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe to the channel, and turn on notifications so you never miss a weekly episode. And finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Orange Pill App, Wasabi Wallet, and Consensus Network. All their information is in the description, and we'll be talking a little more about them later. And so, without further ado, Raheem Tagazadegan on The Freedom Footprint Show. Okay, welcome to The Freedom Footprint Show. Today, we've got Raheem Tagazadegan. I knew I was going to screw this up, so we're just going to keep on running. Targi Sadegan. Yeah. Oh, Murphy. Perfect. I think we'll probably even just leave that in. Raheem, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. And Knut is just back from Miami as well. So I think we've got quite a few things to discuss together for that. Yeah. Welcome. A very warm welcome to you, Raheem. As our viewers might know, Raheem wrote the foreword for the Praxeology book. And I'm very grateful for that. So, uh, Raheem, for, for those of our listeners that do not know who you are, could you give us a brief uh, introduction to who you are and why you're so suitable for writing forwards to praxeology books? Yes, I'm an Austrian economist who's actually from Austria. The rarest of those uh, already rare niche uh, of economists. Uh, even though my name doesn't give it away, I, I have Iranian heritage. But I've grown up in Austria and, uh, of course I, uh, didn't discover the Austrian school in Austria. It completely disappeared. Uh, I spent some time in the United States and there I discovered that this tradition was still alive. I thought it was just a footnote in the history of ideas. That's what I had been taught at the university uh, in Vienna. And, uh, so since then I, I tried to bring back the tradition. 
and uh, rediscover it in its original form, which I think was a very interdisciplinary approach to understand the crisis in society at the time. But uh, uh, Austria-Hungary of the time uh, was very well advanced in having problems and even uh, a kind of psychological and spiritual crisis, uh, uh, which, uh, uh, well, we have been in since then. So it was one of the early countries that were confronted uh, by modernity and postmodernity. And we've been coping with that ever since. We sure have. And in the US, I believe you worked at an observatory as something completely different, right? Is, is that right? Oh, yeah, this was a military salt, which isn't on Google Maps. <laughs> so, but uh, originally, I'm a nuclear physicist. So <laughs> that explains part of the work that, uh, work that led me there. Uh, but uh, as uh, nuclear science was more or less destroyed by politics in Austria, uh, I haven't been really able to pursue that career uh, here. Uh, but I've also studied economics and sociology on the side originally because the proportion of women was much higher <laughs> than in physics, nuclear physics. But uh, then I found my niche, uh, you know, that the natural sciences uh, um, have a high division of labor. So you usually spend your time in front of a screen uh, on a tiny bro uh, problem. And uh, physics is about the simplest problems that you can confront head on. Uh, and economics about the more complex problems already in physics. I was most interested in, in complexity uh, and phenomena of complexity. So uh, it lent itself to the approach of the Austrian school. And I, I thought the lever, it's much more important that you have for fixing economics uh, uh, in society uh, than fixing uh, the, the minuscule problems uh, you have in physics uh, nowadays. Nice. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's a pretty good CV for uh, a pretty good CV for your brain, I'd guess. And uh, <laughs> well, I, I recently read your uh, your book, uh, Austrian School for Investors, uh, and uh, yeah, that was a really fascinating book. I thought you described the problems of the of the world very eloquently, and I'm very happy that you wrote the foreword for my little praxeology book here and. Uh, I hope that we can get more people to to recognize this school of thought as something real, because I know you agree with me on this. Uh, this is uh, just about as real as it gets in the social sciences. I would say that all the other social sciences are merely opinions, and praxeology is really what it's all about, the science of human action. So uh, can you can you give us your uh, the TLDR, yes, like your take on... Um, the, the most common misconceptions about economics that people have in the world today. Yeah, it's already the term economics. That's why Mises went for praxeology. Uh, the, the term itself links to misconceptions. And uh, one of the misconceptions is that there's really a discipline uh, that uh, uh, you can discern and separate uh, from other disciplines. And it's about uh, homo economicus or the economic behavior of human beings. Uh, and uh, it's never really explained how you can tell that the behavior is economic. Uh, uh, it's supposed to be somehow related to money, but then economics doesn't really deal with it. Uh, uh, so it's a quite a superficial approach to the material and materialistic sides of our existence. Uh, but it's one misconception. 
The second misconception, of course, is that a scientific discipline like natural sciences, where we have a division of labor between disciplines uh, and uh, you increase uh, uh, the complexity of your models until you can say uh, almost everything about nothing, a very tiny part of existence, uh, and you try to copy the natural sciences in the success story of engineering, being more and more precise. Uh, and try to say more and more about uh, a tiny, minuscule proportion of our existence. Does make sense? And the third misconception maybe is, uh, uh, which also draws a lot of interest into economics, and that's why I wrote the Austrian School for Investors, uh, is of course that there is some science uh, behind uh, getting more money. <laughs> and that's what practical economics could be about, like... Uh, 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 getting a scientific crystal ball uh, and outperforming everyone else uh, in this kind of red race uh, that we're all in or supposed to be in uh, in speculation. Um, so it's also a very superficial approach to our distorted uh, financial markets uh, of our days and, and trying to use that uh, scientific looking and sounding expertise in a way to scam people. I'd say that's largely a, a large part of practical economics, uh, using expertise. Uh, uh, like we already had the case where we had Nobel laureates he used the expertise to scam people into a fund, which was one of the biggest failures <laughs> in the history of financial markets. And uh, so I'd say those are some of the misconceptions. <laughs> We have an approach in e economics and they are so severe uh, that it's really worth uh, considering changing the term or abandoning the discipline altogether. And probably uh, the world would be better without economists or economics because there's so much bad economics out there. Uh, would you call every finance minister in the world a scammer or, or at least a product of a scam? Probably, yes. Of course, there's an immoral side to ministers of finance since uh, they become more economic or, or have more interest in economics. That was mercantilism and absolutist mercantilism. And absolutist mercantilism, where one of the most famous ministers of finance can be expressed in his uh, uh, expression, which was, my art is uh, in trying to fleece the goose uh, with the least hissing possible. So, <laughs> and of course, if that's not a scam, I don't know what is this like. Get as much money as possible out of your population, uh, because it's your task. Uh, in absolutist mercantilism, you run the economy like a household, like the big household of, of the prince or king or emperor. And that's what your task as a minister of finance is. So it sounds very scam scammy from the beginning. It has been a scam from the beginning. And probably it has only been superseded by the scam of monetary policy, then which has in a way been separated from the Ministry of Finance and, and turned into institutions, uh, which uh, in Europe aren't even national institutions anymore. Uh, so the power of the Minister of Finance to scam has been limited. So he's now a secondary scammer only. Uh, and, and of course, he has to collude with the biggest scam of our time, uh, which is the monetizing the debt assets of the state, uh, which uh, has been a very important innovation uh, <laughs> for uh, the scam that the modern state is. Uh, and uh, yeah, the Minister of Finance still plays a part, but it's a very secondary part. So, 
so how is it to, in your mind? Why why did like the ideas of John Maynard Keynes and uh, that inflation was good in every sense uh, of the word? Uh, how did they become so popular? Is it because it plays right into the hand of the state, or well, why is it that Keynesianism became so popular? Oh, Keynes was a very clever guy, and he realized something. Not only that inflation is good. I mean, it, he wasn't uh, that straightforward. Uh, inflation is always good. The problem about inflation, or, or the advantage of inflation, is that usually people don't realize what's happening, or they realize it too late. And that was the big insight of Keynes. Uh, he figured out if you got to. Uh, decrease uh, the salaries, uh, in particular in the British economy of the time. Uh, we had politically inflated salaries, which really harmed uh, um, the competitiveness of the British economy. Uh, and then Keynes figured out where well, you can fight uh, with the unions and the workers and make them feel bad and they won't vote for you anymore. So that's why you need economists. They can figure out a way that people don't perceive, they don't, they don't hiss that much. Uh, so that's there again, this original insight <laughs> in uh, the economics or economics. The goose, yeah. uh, the goose uh, for the geese uh, that are hissing. Uh, and he figured out the easiest way is to decrease real salaries by inflating away the purchasing power of the people. So the unions don't realize what's happening or they realize it too late. Of course, it's only after the fact that they then demand, of course, that the salaries are increased, but they're always a step behind. Uh, uh, and in that way, you can increase the spectrum of what's possible in politics. And that's how Keynes perceived it. So that's a tool. It's a, one of the most important tools. And that's why it has been universally used in history. I mean, there are very few exceptions to that one general rule that inflation is one of the most important tools in the tool cut of politics. If politics is somehow the extraction of wealth out of the population. Uh, and of course, there's a whole science behind that. This called the economics of the stationary bandit. Um, <laughs> because the plundering always has a downside. You know, people run away, they hide their wealth. Uh, so, uh, by becoming a stationary bandit, uh, and somehow arrange yourself with extracting as much as possible with the least hissing possible again from the population, you got to figure out your stuff and you need clever people and you're going to hire the best. Uh, and that of course opens up a huge job market for clever economists, uh, and that was one of the reasons why Hayek uh, was a contemporary of Keynes and they even bought at the same university and they were even friends. And, and I realized that something funny is happening. All the young economists, they turn Keynesian. And uh, I'd say it's not because it's more convincing. It's really, they figured out, wow, that's the way to go. That's the future. And they were absolutely right. <laughs> that's how you get a job afterwards. And that's why you had university in the beginning, right? One of my favorite Hayek I, I, the ideas from Hayek is that money should be, and I think you touched on this in the book, that money should really have been an adjective and not a, a noun always. So uh, every good is money. It's, it just has different levels of moneyness to it because you can ex exchange every good for another good. And money is just a very, a good that is very useful for that single purpose. Um, um, yeah, it, it has other characteristics as well, but, but really, uh, money should have been an adjective and not a noun. And I can totally subscribe to that. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
Oh, that's a very profound insight. Um, it has been missed <laughs> by most economists. Uh, and if you look at uh, uh, economic history and the history of money, you figure out that like, most of the mistakes come from that. People are looking for an objective thing. And, and then they, of course, they encounter all the paradoxes uh, uh, and they can't really figure out what's going on. And that leads uh, all to the, these misconceptions. And I, I think it's also one of the important insights you need to have to understand Bitcoin, to understand something emerging, something changing, uh, different levels of moneyness. Uh, like most economists, they look at the textbook definition as like the universal medium of exchange. Uh, and they look at Bitcoin and say, oh, it's not universal. And they've been saying that for the whole time. And, and it's crazy. Like they're saying the same thing that they said 10 years ago. It's just they don't realize that you can't define it by the end result. You've got to look at the process. That is how Menge, of course, perceive money as a dynamic approach of the Austrian school. We got to figure out how things change, not how they are in the end, because uh, if uh, things are static as in economic textbooks, uh, then of course, as a dead society, that's, that's, that's a downfall, that's a dark age if everything is static. Uh, but uh, of course, it's also related to how economics is taught within the um, context of the university. I've ex I've been teaching the university for a long time now, and I've, I've realized uh, the thing that you have to teach uh, usually is like 15 years ago, you would have to uh, present the curriculum to then be certified and to then have the right textbooks available and to figure out what kind of hours the students have to take and which exams uh, to take. So it's about 10 to 15 years uh, between what you think you got to teach and what you uh, will be teaching uh, in the end. Uh, and some of it is like uh, <laughs> fantasies that are hundreds of years old because you just <laughs> didn't really have, and no one pushed you to change them. Uh, and usually you get to go and discuss uh, with colleagues uh, what may be wrong in their classes. It's just how many hours do you get to teach what uh, and how many ECTS points you get for teaching the same thing, uh, the same standardized things that you can print uh, textbooks for. Uh, that's a sad state of affairs there. Funny you should use the word emergence because it makes me think of like some view uh, Bitcoin as a religion and Satoshi as this messianic figure and it fits very well into into creationism because it was actually created by some guy who may or may not be messianic that that may also be an adjective by the way uh, and uh, but uh, what bitcoin is now and like for me uh, bitcoin was discovered i discovered it when the bitcoin cash fork happened and it emerged out of something simpler it was a complex system that emerged out of simpler rules so what are your views on that? How, how do you view Bitcoin today and has it changed over the years? Uh, that's one of the most profound insights by Menge. It's actually the most important phenomena, emergent phenomena. Uh, and it's uh, very close to what uh, us physicists have discovered in complex phenomena, uh, that we have emergent complexity. Uh, and then with, even with things that seem like obviously they've been created by people, like code, uh, someone must have written the original code of Bitcoin and it's still rewritten and changed and updated. Uh, and, and of course, someone has come up with the words we've used, uh, uh, but Menge realized even those uh, man-made things in the context still can be discoveries because it's not about the obje objective character of a word, not the uh, precise amount of letters that someone may have been first uh, to propose it, 
but it's how we use it and how we discover its usefulness and its meaning by communicating with other people. And without communication, uh, the words will be uh, senseless and without meaning. And the same with money. It's an institution that's for cooperation. So it always has this kind of intersubjectivity. Uh, it can't be just one thing uh, that you can cut off from these relations. It's a relation in itself. Uh, uh, and that's a very important insight. Uh, uh, and it lends itself to, to a lot uh, of social phenomena. And that's why there's a link between Menger's approach and the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, um, Menger referred to Ferguson, uh, for example, who had that insight that a lot of our institutions are actually uh, not of uh, human design, but emerge out of our choices, but somehow unconsciously emerge out of our choices, uh, which are not arbitrary in a sense, but we have to figure out in this intersubjective cooperation how other people react to what we do, what we propose, and what works out. Uh, and uh, that, that's a totally different set of phenomena compared to the simple ones where you can create something, design something, or write down something, and then it's as it is, uh, and it's as it is for a long time. Yeah, uh, that's that's one of the one of the reasons that I love praxeology so much because it can very clearly show you, like for instance, if I, I always use the, the the same example here, but if you have an apple tree farmer who has one apple tree and he can keep all of his profits and he can afford a second tree the next year, he can double his business and thereby satisfy the double amount of customers, more needs satisfied, and he can he can uh, then have four apple trees the third year and eight the fourth year and so on and so forth, and exponentially expand his business to meet more needs for more people. Uh, well, there's an S shape there on the exponential curve at some point, but still, this this rapid growth growth and exponentially better for everyone scenario can simply be taken away by by a fifty percent tax rate, uh, which would deprive him of the second tree every every single year. So uh, yeah, I really like that approach because it explains, as you say, like uh, it explains change in society and what 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 would lead to what, and just not static things. But but it's a very nice nice way of. Of, of showing you why you can't just think linearly about these things. Uh, why, why this is, what's the example Rothbard used? When you, when you throw a stone into a lake, you can very easily calculate how long it will take for the stone to reach the bottom. But if you throw a man into a lake, he can choose to swim in each direction. That's 360 degrees to swim. And yeah. he can choose to just lay still and sink like a stone. But choice is always present in human action, right? Yes, there's also profound uncertainty uh, because, and it's a positive uh, thing. It seems negative to most people because we can uh, we we make mistakes. But the positive thing is we can learn from that. And of course, most learning comes from failure. It's from trying things out that don't work out, but we can learn from that uh, uh, and try something else, uh, which may eventually work. Uh, and that's how the progress of the human race has happened, uh, and how we've reached ever higher uh, uh, levels of our potential. Today's show is brought to you by our sponsors. First up, Orange Pill app. Stack friends who stack stats. Meet like-minded Bitcoiners near you and speed up hyper-Bitcoinization with Orange Pill app. Bitcoin isn't an online-only phenomenon, and Orange Pill app helps facilitate the social layer, connecting Bitcoiners in their local area. 
The best part is it maintains your privacy through the whole process. And since you have to subscribe to access the app, you know that everyone there is high signal and cares about Bitcoin. A great new feature is events. You can now create local events and meetups right from the Orange Bill app to help build your local community while maintaining the Bitcoin-only signal. Orange Bill app is available on iOS and Android. Download now. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, an open-source, non-custodial desktop Bitcoin wallet that is trustless, easy to use, and affordable. It has CoinJoin built in to facilitate your privacy. Every Bitcoin transaction leaves a clear footprint, but with Wasabi, you can make sure that others can't track your steps and threaten your sovereignty. Just send your coins to Wasabi, wait, and your coins will be private on the other end. It's open source, trustless by design, and non-custodial. You have full control over your keys. Check it out now at wasabiwallet.io. Double check that link. That's wasabiwallet.io. Nice stuff. As, as Luke said there, but in the beginning, I just returned from Miami and one of the one of the most, uh, you know, one of the events given most attention to was the the speech from uh, a presidential candidate, Ross, uh, Robert F. Kennedy. So it was the the nephew of uh, John F. Kennedy, I believe. And he, he says that he's pro-Bitcoin and him, he's a Democrat and he says that Bitcoin is democracy money and that they will make uh, it, they will make sure that running a node is legal and that it's not taxed at the individual and stuff. And this made me think a lot about people's, uh, you know, relationship with politicians and what they think politicians can and cannot do for Bitcoin. So I put up a little Twitter poll this morning uh, saying that what's better for Bitcoin, politicians that are pro-Bitcoin, politicians that are anti-Bitcoin, or Honey Badger doesn't give a shit. Uh, and so, so which one of those three would you advocate for? Well, obviously, the third one. Uh, <laughs> I think that is the result of your poll as well. Uh, well, the, yeah, the third one got the the highest amounts of votes. But what what really, what sort of depressingly, the the second largest was like politicians who are pro Bitcoin, and there's a very good case to be made. But it, let's say that the third one wasn't an option. Would you rather want a politician to be pro-Bitcoin or anti-Bitcoin? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's Le a good, good leading question, question yeah. I know. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, I mean, it depends if in the short term, you really, it means politics, which is the politics that concerns you because the policies of your environment being very anti-Bitcoin and you suffer from that and you're torn because you may want to have to leave that jurisdiction. And then there's a change of heart, change, uh, usually change of parties, change of politicians in power, uh, and they become pro-Bitcoin. Then, of course, you'd be in favor uh, of, of people not suffering from politics. Uh, in the long term, it's, of course, a problem because usually it means that you pin your hopes on those politicians. And just as they may have changed from bad politics to good uh, or for your interests, good politics, it may change again. Uh, and that's the, uh, uh, the terrible issue at heart and the problem at heart. Uh, and there's another problem, of course, if we uh, look too much at uh, uh, politics, uh, 
and don't look at it as if it's outside of our sphere of influences like a natural catastrophe uh, that, that we can watch and observe and learn from it more hopefully. I but love that framing. It's, that's it's, that's it's, what it is. It, it, we think it's like suddenly we can change. It's the way up for frustration and a lot of frustration. And that frustration was filled by the members of the Austrian school very early. Uh, Karl Menger pinned all his hopes to the uh, crown prince Rudolf, who committed suicide. Uh, and then Menger was like, oh, invest, I invested so much of my life in that guy. Uh, he even went on travels with him and he took him uh, to Scotland. Uh, and, and he exposed him to market economy and, and he had really high hopes that he would be able to reform that sclerotic political structure of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, uh, but I mean, if we hadn't uh, committed suicide, I'm pretty sure the outcome would have been worse because he, he was a pathological <laughs> person uh, and, and he would have failed to do the structures uh, and uh, would have made probably things much worse than they were or already. Um, and then for a short time, members of the Austrian school had very high positions, uh, even the political administration. But if you look at the practical achievements, uh, they don't look that good. It's like Böhm von Barberek, uh, who was the Minister of Finance uh, for a time. He was the one who introduced the income tax uh, in Austria. He, of course, he had really very sound <laughs> renowned uh, for that. <laughs> Uh, because the older way of financing uh, the state uh, was through projective tariffs uh, and fees and so on, very inefficient system. So he thought if you replace it by a very efficient but very low income tax, that would be an improvement. Uh, but of course, we've learned the same <laughs> lesson in the US as well. It starts with a very small, efficient income tax. But of course, it's uh, <laughs> somehow you breached them and, and the triggers first. And, and then that was a very naive way of approaching a centralized government and thinking it'll be more efficient. Of course, in the beginning, it's all more efficient, uh, but then it's efficiently fleecing the, uh, the geese of the population. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's a big problem. Uh, so then uh, later on, the frustration increased uh, and, and Mises already when he was asked, so what would you do if you were in power? Uh, if you were, for example, uh, the head of the central bank, he said, uh, oh, I, I uh, would step down. Uh, and of course, he frustrated so the people asking that question. Um, and uh, it was an insight uh, going back to Bern Barbeck, even one, one of his teachers who had his own political experience, who realized that uh, uh, there is an old opposition between power and what he termed economic law, between the dynamics uh, of societies. Uh, and uh, he thought that in the short run, only in the short run, power can prevail. But in the long run, it'll be these praxeological laws of, of the science of uh, human action that will prevail in the end. And it's usually very costly to count on power uh, in the positive or negative. If you want to get rid of something or you want to trailblaze for something and use power for it, uh, uh, usually it's a very short-term approach to do that. Uh, and then eventually the later generation, my one of my teachers was Roland Bader, who was uh, the most important German-speaking student of Hayek. Uh, uh, he coined uh, the, the phrase, economics unites and uh, politics separates. 
separates us. And I, I think that's uh, really one of the best ways uh, to express it. And you will see that with any politicians who uh, is pro-Bitcoin, people will be put off Bitcoin because they dislike the politician. Um, uh, and, and that's really the big issue with politics. And most people assume it's like getting a politician on board means it'll be more people united behind Bitcoin. But usually the opposite is the case. What's really uniting is that exchange, that cooperation with other people uh, and, and reaching out to people with whom you may not share the values, the culture, the biographical background, but still realize that's what money is for. It's linking people and bringing people together. And it's what Bitcoin should be for, uniting us around the globe uh, with that very neutral cosmopolitan uh, um, infrastructure that only a very neutral money can provide, which is the least political possible. Oh, beautifully put. Uh, I'm going to remember this and steal it someday. It's, that's so good. Like uh, politics divide and money unites. Uh, that's also, that makes me think of uh, KYC and, and know your customer policies, which are, in my opinion, they do the exact opposite of what money is supposed to do. Because mo money is supposed to be uh, a tool we can use so that we can trade without knowing each other. Because if we already know each other, if you know your customer, you don't need money. You can just exchange favors or whatever and keep track of creep track of stuff some other way. Just write stuff down or whatever. But when you so the the very purpose of money is to is to not need KYC. And if it's not neutral, it's not really money, is it? It's uh, yeah. or the moneyness of the money goes down. So so the it it has less of the adjective money. Uh, we may still call it money in the noun sense, but its effectiveness as as such diminishes when we meddle with it in any in any way. And this of course includes inflation. Uh that's that's of course the biggest problem of all. So what's your thought thoughts on that and on KYC and this and such and why do you think it's so common now and why why does it creep into every political decision? Yeah, it's uh, politics again is tribalism behind it and, and trying to control people and knowing everything about everyone. Uh, whereas in fact, money, uh, uh, the main importance of money is in catalectics and, uh, it's the smaller part, uh, but more important part of praxeology, which is about the exchange between people that don't know each other, which means they don't trust each other yet. If uh, we trust each other completely, usually the amount of money we need is much less or maybe zero uh, because uh, probably we'll do the same things uh, and and then we'll just uh, maybe advance something. When, when I have more apples, we are both apple farmers. That's why we trust each other. We do the same things. We are brothers. Uh, and then when I have more apples, I give some more to you, but it doesn't make any sense because you have the same amount of apples. Uh, so it's really the diversity, and it was Mises' insights, it's really diversity that leads to exchange. Uh, and uh, because this diversity usually means that we have a hard time trusting each other because we don't really know each other, uh, because we are not alike, we are different, we have different challenges, different experiences. Uh, that's uh, why money is that important. Uh, uh, if we all trusted each other, we were all a band of brothers, we wouldn't really need money that much. Uh, it's that a part of uncertainty uh, and, and lack of trust that enters it. And that's, of course, was a crucial insight by Satoshi Nakamoto as well, that money is there to fix a trust issue. 
um, and, and bridge a trust issue uh, and, and how uh, bridging that trust issue is, is really crucial for economic cooperation and for the win-win value creation that Catalectics is all about. And, and I really like uh, this term as well, like praxeology. It really makes sense. Uh, Catalectics comes from Greek, sounds again a very difficult term, uh, but it means not only to exchange, it means to... Um, Going from being enemies to being friends, uh, going from being divided by our politics, which is usually different because we have different interests and different preferences and different ideas, how we want to live, going to being united uh, by the means of exchange, by figuring out that there's a win-win possibility, even if we're very different and and benefiting of each other. And the more different we are, the higher is the win-win opportunity we have. Yeah, this is one of the crucial points that left-wingers leave out all the time, that uh, the, diff- the more different we are, the more we have to gain from one another. Even if one person is better at everything and the other is worse at everything because of Ricardo's law. But, uh, I mean, this, this talk about... Uh, uh, <laughs> it leads me to, to one of my favorite parts of the rabbit hole that I'm trying to figure out. And I think this is a... If, if, very, if it's true, it's, it's pretty profound because the, uh, I have a feeling that this, this don't trust verify attitude that underpins Bitcoin leads us to a world in which we can trust each other more because our reputational capital matters more. Uh, because on, yeah. on a Bitcoin standard, you, you, you've heard me talking about this before, how uh, all Bitcoiners are incentivized to help one another because we all want to see the value of Bitcoin go up. And also we adopt a lower time preference because of the deflationary na- nature of the, uh, of the asset, um, if you can call it an asset. Uh, and I, I think, yeah, ironically, that leads to everyone in Bitcoin trusting other Bitcoiners to, to a higher extent. And as you just said, the need for money goes down when we trust each other more. Mm-hmm. So I view that there, that this is a, a uh, the, the, the real scaling solution then to Bitcoin uh, is not the Lightning Network, but it's the fact that we will need money less and less. Fewer transactions will take place. Uh, so uh, do you think there's some truth to that? Um, my favorite example is if you have 10 poor people uh, eating lunch for 10 days, uh, they each buy a pack of noodles. So they make 100 microtransactions times 10. Uh, if there's a hundred, uh, 10 wealthy people going out uh, having lunch, they're all friends and they, uh, they go to a restaurant every day and someone always picks up the bill. So there are 10 transactions and not a hundred. Uh, do you think something like this could play out as everyone gets, you know, uh, wealthier or less materialistic, at least on a, on a Bitcoin standard? Yes, I agree that, uh, probably the circular, uh, economies. Of small trust legends of Bitcoiners, uh, that will really be uh, the thing that uh, scales the use is bringing in more people and different uses. Uh, uh, and then uh, I'm not sure you need less. Probably yeah, it could be that within those networks you'd have less payments, but then uh, uh, it'd be more important to uh, invest uh, part of it uh, to to. Uh, find out new links to different parts uh, of uh, on the globe and different parts in time, like linking the future and linking different places. Uh, 
Uh, and yeah, maybe different layers then of money. So I, I'd agree. I, I don't think it's like increasing payments within the circular economy uh, of small trusted networks. Uh, uh, that, that's that's not really the thing uh, where we have uh, the main need and, and, and the main adoption happening. And the second thing I want to agree uh, with, it, it was uh, the expectation already very early that, uh, of course, because the catalectics, because the economy of people that don't know each other and don't really trust each other and, and are very far from each other geographically and, and in values and cultures and so on uh, would lead to trust issues and incentive problems uh, so that even the leading German economists at the time of the Austrian school uh, thought in terms of, uh, well, you can't really trust the entrepreneur and certainly not the merchant uh, because he always want to take advantage of you. And the whole of economics is basically a Jewish or British plot uh, to take advantage of you, whereas real German economics is about the hero. Yeah, it's like the really moral, virtuous person uh, here. And it was all bullshit. Uh, and it wasn't only theoretical bullshit because those heroes, of course, uh, turned out to be the worst uh, people possible as they turned to politics. Uh, it was also empirically nonsense because what you could see early on that it was exactly in these trade and merchant networks uh, that you had a very high trust uh, within these networks uh, happening because then, of course, it becomes important. The trust becomes economically important. You have leverage because it's very easy to lose trust, very difficult to build up trust over time, uh, in particular if you are not just dealing with uh, nepotism, with, with like people that have to trust you anyway or say they have to trust you, but you can uh, for you can force them by social pressure because they're part of your family. They're really your brothers or in a sense part of your tribe. Uh, uh, and that's, of course, what we see. They'll um, uh, turn a blind eye usually uh, to their uh, tribal affiliates, uh, which doesn't happen if as a foreigner, if potentially a Jew in Germany, you want to do business, you want to... you have to do good business you have to be honorable merchant you have to provide values over time and that leads of course to the uh, incentives because there's so much more in win-win than in win-lose it's unlimited potential and trust there has a much higher level uh, and that's what we have been able to observe empirically that uh, merchants were not the people taking advantage of others uh, 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 in the larger scale and actually then uh, uh, being able to trust each other much more doing through the experience of markets. So in a sense, those markets were civilizing institutions and commerce turned out to be civilizing institutions, much against the expectations of all the intellectuals. And they still haven't <laughs> taken home that lesson. No, because they would be biting in the hand that feeds them if they did, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. The, speaking of catalactics, like uh, maybe it's good to explain to the listeners the difference between biological competition and catalactic competition. And uh, basically, bi biological competition is uh, winner-takes-all, law-of-the-jungle, violent uh, the competition and ca catalactic competition is free market competition in which everyone wins uh, theoretically and we only need theoretically because we know we have no use for empiricism in in, uh, in human action I, I have an idea about bitcoin enabling something like hyper catalactics or whatever you might call it just because of this that we're all incentivized to help one another since that will 
increase the value of the money we use in just getting more attention to it and more people adopting it. Uh, since the supply is capped and that people will lose their Satoshis over time, inevitably, we have a deflationary money. And is there a way for, for like this to be, be like super catalectics where we are not only incentivized to engage in catalectic competition, but that companies are also incentivized to, instead of instead of compete with one another, help one another at every stage and like enable even more cooperation than, than before. Uh, that's uh, two things. Uh, one is like the difference to biological competition. Now, of course, the main difference is, is usually biology means limited resources uh, within an ecological niche, which you replace uh, other contenders for those resources, either uh, with your uh, ge uh, genetic uh, heritage, uh, you can have more children survive, uh, or at the same time, like getting rid of, of food competitors. And uh, that's a well-known problem, uh, even in, 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 I'd say, physics or, or, or physical biology. It's called the Räuber-Beute-Problem, uh, expressed by the lotka volterra uh, uh, equations, uh, which like the pre hunter uh, pre problem And there you see uh, cyclical catastrophes of limited resources, uh, basically organisms preying on, on each other uh, without being able to increase uh, uh, the supply in a long-term win-win way, uh, because each one is the pre of the other uh, organism. Uh, whereas the kind of economic competition, of course, is not a zero-sum, it's a positive-sum competition. Uh, and uh, that we can see empirically, that uh, you would expect that uh, entrepreneurs or merchants, if they see other merchants within a similar or same industry uh, collocating that they'd be like fierce and, and defensive, but it, it's quite the opposite. Uh, it's they are happy <laughs> for more contenders. You can also already see that very early if in the same street or the bazaar is usually a collocation, uh, uh, increased density of competitors and they uh, like that because it, it provides more value to customers. So more customers come because they know there are more merchants specializing in the same thing. Uh, so you have a higher quality and a higher supply at the same time. And the discipline of competition, which of course is mainly to the advantage of the customers. So you have more customers coming and the whole pie gets larger uh, and larger. And it's why uh, competition business usually is synergetic. Uh, and you fairly early uh, figure out that just doing exactly the same thing within a limited range doesn't make any sense. Uh, you're going to diversify, you're going to specialize. Uh, and uh, the firms that are, for example, market leaders, it looks like they've replaced a lot of company. No, usually they are very specialized companies. They do something that most people have no clue about. Uh, uh, and those are very important companies for, for a German and Austrian economy of our days. And usually most of the European economies, they very much depend in their wealth on global market leaders, which are called the hidden champions. They're hidden because no one has a clue what they are producing. They're usually a business to business, uh, specialized uh, tool makers, uh, uh, and providers of, of uh, uh, pro productive uh, tools and capital goods. Uh, uh, and by specializing out of that competition, they get an advantage. Uh, and that's exactly the opposite of being zero sum. You don't do the same thing everyone else is doing within a limited range. 
you do something that improves what others are doing because you're providing the capital goods that other entrepreneurs are using to provide ever more and ever increasing value uh, to others. So it's a completely different pattern and, and all the, the likeness of like kind of Darwinist survival of the fittest in the market uh, don't make any sense. And, and that has been discovered fairly early. Uh, that, uh, of course, there's the same evolutionary pattern and its change and the very important insights by Darwin, uh, uh, that, that we can use as analogies, but it's a very different process in the morality and in the synergetics and in the outcome. All right. So, so one company that comes to mind is MicroStrategy. That's <laughs> one of those hidden players that has a lot of success, but nobody really knows what they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, Luke, maybe you have a question or two for Rahim. Well, hey, Rahim, uh, this has been fantastic. I, I, I love that you can talk on, on this subject in such great detail. I have a feeling this is going to be like a, a really, really uh, good, um, if not introduction, um, a deepening of the, the knowledge of, of Austrian economics for, for many of our viewers. But uh, may, maybe just to take a little bit of a step back, um, can can you explain a little bit more about um, I guess the the basics of uh, Austrian economics historically? Because you you were mentioning a lot of figures there, and um, I, I think maybe some people might not be familiar with Menger and Mises and stuff. And so, can, can you give us just a little bit of a historical context there? Yes, uh, the founder of Austrian economics was Karl Menger in the nineteenth century, late nineteenth century. Uh, he Originally, I'd say he was a media entrepreneur. So he, he started newspapers, he wrote for newspapers, he even wrote literature uh, in what at the time was very popular as a kind of serialized novel, uh, uh, printing newspapers. And he was selected as a tutor of the crown prince uh, uh, because at the time, Austria-Hungary was a belated modernizer uh, with huge dynamics. So Vienna, within a short time, became a financial hub, an industrial hub, uh, a scientific hub and cultural hub uh, of Central Europe, uh, more or less, with other important cities, uh, of course. Uh, Menge came more from the, the Polish realm of Europe. Uh, he, he was born in what is now Poland, and then moved through those important cities, part of which are in the Czech Republic now. And it's quite typical of this uh, Austro-Hungarian uh, realm. It's, it's just Central Europe, which gets modernized with a dynamic which puts it up front in the world. So Vienna became one of the five most important cities in the world within that time. And um, even politics, in politics, they realized, okay, we got to cope with that. So they became a bit open, at least to understanding the modern dynamics. And of course, they realized that they need the money <laughs> that this wealth provides and the credits that those uh, um, uh, bankers and industrialists uh, could provide. Uh, and uh, so that led to Menga and then his students being uh, really important uh, for a very short time uh, for that empire. And it led to a, a high prestige uh, for them. Karl Menga was at a very young age, became a full professor at university. But his main importance, he was not a mainstream academic. Uh, he didn't really have an academic career, most, more of an entrepreneurial background. Uh, most of the members then of the Austrian school who had that fun in the title, which means nobility, was actually low nobility, which means recent nobility. So their fathers or grandfathers were ennobled uh, uh, because they were successful entrepreneurs or engineers uh, 
And uh, of course, the, the tumbling uh, structure realized we got to uh, <laughs> like uh, refresh the elite uh, in a way by those successful people. Uh, so that was a bit of the background. Uh, and then most of Austrian uh, economics from them was outside academia. It was only the second generation. We were still at the prestige uh, uh, and then at academia as in politics. Uh, usually it's the people that got the jobs that we have forgotten since then that were unimportant, uh, that were just running along functionaries. Uh, and Mises never got, got a full professorship. Now Mises is the third generation of the Austrian school. Uh, so it's Menga, then he's, uh, he has important academic students who are Wieser and Böhm von Barwerk, but his really favorite students are much lesser known today, uh, and their impact is very hidden. Uh, so he had two, his two favorite students, uh, Felix uh, Somari and, and uh, Richard Schüller, and uh, Somari didn't go into academic and he recommended to them not to go into academics <laughs> because then he, he got quite pessimistic. He realized where Europe was heading, where Austro-Hungary was heading, and he realized what academics is about. Uh, uh, so he recommended them to go into practical fields. And on one entered banking and he turned out to be one of the most prophetic uh, uh, people within the financial uh, profession. Uh, he was one of the founders of Swiss private banking. And as a refuge within the war and destruction times, uh, largely underrated uh, in its importance, this kind of financial infrastructure for rebuilding after the war, uh, I'd say. But uh, he's, he's little known. He's written a, a very important book, uh, and he has been called the Raven of Zurich uh, because he was so prophetic uh, in, in, in uh, all in his decisions, uh, investment decisions as well. And the other one was in politics and diplomacy and all the work behind the curtains. So he realized it's not really the front people in politics that count. He's trying to bring together different interests behind the curtains of diplomacy. And he, he was careful in like rebuilding those links after the, the great wars uh, and, and somehow saving civilization uh, in a sense. Uh, and so from the beginning, I'd say the main heritage of this Austrian school really was... Uh, hidden and it was more in the salon and the circles and the coffee houses and in practical enterprises. Uh, and for me, the peak of the Austrian school is the Mises Circle, which is not at the university. It's at his day job, uh, which is the Chamber of Commerce. And he just uses the rooms there. They, they have beautiful uh, rooms uh, uh, they have. Um, and there he had a kind of seminar, uh, but it was not at all uh, like uh, someone teaching uh, class at university, it was inviting the brightest people of his time in an intimate circle where you try to figure out what's happening. And, and uh, uh, they discussed uh, not a lot of economics. Uh, uh, he had a lot, uh, it was just a few economists, but also uh, scientists from, from different fields. And he has practitioners as well, invited like entrepreneurs and bankers and managers attending his circle. Uh, and the main topic that is discussed with epistemology is how can you know something? How can you figure out something? Uh, why, uh, why can't you really trust the scientists of the time? What's the problem uh, with uh, scientific public policy and, and, and the experts? So that already happened there. As a crisis of, of confidence and trust in the experts, in the elites, uh, and and uh, how how do you cope with that? How do you cope with a society in crisis 
where no one is sure who to trust uh, and and who is uh, uh, selling you ideas because he has an interest. Uh, so it's all about that. And that's where really praxeology emerges in the Misesian expression, which he tries to figure out the epistemology behind understanding economy, cooperation and society and the society in crisis uh, uh, mainly. And uh, then he's, uh, uh, of course, Europe goes down, <laughs> a burning, uh, and uh, Mises, like many others, uh, can escape first to Switzerland and then to the US. Uh, and he helps a lot of uh, colleagues, even those don't agree or not part of, of, of the Austin school, very different approaches. He tries to save as many people as possible. And it's like kind of network of people try to help each other, save each other. Uh, and uh, then Mises reestablishes himself in the U.S., and that's how the Austrian school becomes the Austrian school as we know it today, uh, which is very little known in Austria, safe uh, from my work. And uh, it's mainly a U.S. phenomenon is how it survives in the U.S. And Mises there teaches a seminar, never gets a full professorship, has a seminar, and he's too... Uh, most important students are Hayek, who also spends time in the US and, and the UK, then goes back to Austria. It was a big mistake <laughs> um, uh, going back there. Uh, so you could say his most important uh, European student is Hayek, and his most important uh, American student is Murray Rothbard. Uh, and uh, Murray Rothbard is, is crucial in like keeping Brexology alive uh, as a living tradition. His most important student then is Hans Hoppe, and uh, Hans Hoppe becomes one one of my teachers. Uh, then that's my over the time how it survived as a living tradition. I'd say going for those people. Uh, so that's that's Ling Menga, Böhm von Barwerk, Mises, then Hayek and uh, Rothbard, uh, and Hans Hoppe, and and um, Hayek's. Uh, only important student who really wrote about the Austrian school as a living tradition. Uh, and she didn't become a Keynesian, was an entrepreneur, was a German entrepreneur called Roland Bader, but he's not uh, very well known outside of the German-speaking world. Now, those seminars you you, uh, you talked about, they sound an awful lot like a Bitcoin conference, <laughs> like maybe not the Miami one, but but still, they <laughs> sound like a, a gathering of uh, clever people and uh, entrepreneurs doing stuff together. Uh, we love those, of course. Actually, can 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 you can you both talk a little bit about this uh, the, the praxeology book now and Raheem, maybe your views on this as as how the this book can be useful for people to get into the topic. Good idea. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, in the early days it was mainly people going from Austrian School of Economics to discovering Bitcoin. Uh, and now it's it's the other way around. It's like people are into Bitcoin and then are interested in the economics behind it uh, and that discover the Austrian School of Economics. So that has changed around a lot. Uh, and that's why I think it makes a lot of sense uh, uh, in, in that regard to go from writing books about Bitcoin, you know, uh, writing about a book on Brexiology. Uh, and uh, I hope it helps uh, Bitcoiners uh, who then... Uh, develop these broader interests. And I also agree with the second thing that uh, you said, those circles uh, remind you of the best Bitcoin conferences. And exactly Bitcoin is a similar topic. It's, it's very interdisciplinary and it brings together people uh, from, from the practice, enterprise, of coding, uh, of finance, uh, uh, with people who are 
have a deep interest in really the most complex theoretical issues of our time. Uh, so there's a similarity there uh, as well, I'd say. Uh, and of course, uh, Brexiology is unique uh, within the various economic schools in highlighting the importance of money. And it's quite interesting. I mean, you would assume that money should be like the focal uh, thing in economics, but it's not. Uh, most of economics uh, really eschews uh, money and then treats it as something that's just there. Obviously, there's a neutral wheel behind which uh, uh, activity really flows uh, and a very abstract approach uh, to it. Uh, and it's, of course, well, it's a very natural link. And I'm convinced that Satoshi Nakamoto can be considered as a member of the Austrian school. Uh, and, and I see quite a lot of science there. Uh, and I consider him one of the practical students uh, of the Austrian school, quite similar in, in his impact potentially and how he's hidden, how it's concealed, how it's not a, a famous uh, uh, academic pop star or Nobel laureate, uh, uh, very similar to practical impact uh, of the Austrian school over time. And, and I know lots of people, no one else would know, are, are not really famous and have an outsized practical input in, in enterprises, uh, in, in finance, uh, in, in diplomacy in a certain sense, in new projects uh, that bring forward civilization. Um, and uh, I, I think that's quite similar. And, and, and always the question, what unites the brightest people of the time, uh, and I think Bitcoin is one of the topics, as maybe used to be the Austrian school uh, back in the days. Well, they're they're intertwined, sort of, <laughs> and uh, I I always viewed it as uh, Bitcoin makes makes the libertarian dream possible uh, in a way in in a way it really wasn't before because of like these gangs of bandits called governments taking over everything at all points and uh, yeah in in this uh, cyclical destructive manner uh, where they they form a constitution which looks nice on paper and as you say they start with a small income tax and uh, uh, a mere century afterwards which is a fairly short time frame you have a, either a civil war or a war with, between nations and it's ending in totalitarianism and something something going south very fast and uh, yeah bitcoin provides a uh, a way to sideline that and to bypass it the whole process in my view. And uh, uh, another thing I want to tell you about the Praxeology book, I brought it to Miami and there was a Mises Institute booth uh, in the, in the, at the conference. So I gave them a book and I told them my strategy, which is exactly the same as when I wrote the Bitcoin books, that I'm just going to unapologetically write one without asking anyone for permission and then crash all the parties uh, a year later. So, uh, so here's me hoping for to get invited to uh, Mises Institute stuff in the future. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, what well, one thing maybe to add to, or I have a slight disagreement in uh, that it, it's a linear progression. Somehow Bitcoin uh, is a linear progression as like a weak theory of progress is uh, how Rothbard calls it. Uh, uh, that will be the final salvation from us being trapped in politics. Uh, I see it's more a constant uh, uh, a ringing uh, and, and, and fight between the centralizing controlling tendencies. And of course, we've seen in the past uh, 
positive developments, very positive developments, not linear, usually after very good times, hard times uh, follow. Uh, but we've seen a similar impact of a kind of monetary infrastructure. And we've seen it in the trade networks, which of course needed a kind of monetary infrastructure, which allowed them to escape the grasp politics and the plunderers. Uh, and uh, it was in, in the pressure precious metals and, and merchants realizing that don't trust verify, don't look at uh, a Caesar's image uh, on the coin, don't look at the number indicated on the coin, just weigh it and measure it. Uh, uh, and, and that's how, of course, the, the big uh, merchants uh, realize they are set uh, uh, they have a unit of account, which is not an objective thing. Uh, it's not an existing coin in operation. So you somehow separate yourself when you separate money and state in a sense, which has already happened in the past and it may happen again. And uh, so it's not a linear progression. We had good times, even in, in antiquity, uh, where enterprise, which usually doesn't enter the history book so much, but is, of course, the, the main driving force behind the wealth in antiquity and then wealth in the renaissances uh, that have happened uh, since then. And they all show a similar uh, pattern of uh, heavier uh, infrastructure for these links between people, allowing cooperation between people. And uh, those links are not only physical links, uh, and even behind the physical links of the roads, and the railroads and the bridges, you need the economic the power in the sense or, or the wealth uh, to be able to build and finance those things. Uh, and usually it's not the road being there and then the trade happening is the trade there, which uh, makes a road or ships or other connections possible. Um, and uh, uh, this, this kind of trade uh, on, only happens because people figured out an infrastructure that's not dependent on fiat. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, uh, maybe a bit of a misunderstanding there, but, but I, uh, this is why I think that it's politicians that are against Bitcoin are probably even better for Bitcoin than the ones that are pro, because because it makes us keep on edge uh, on keeps us on the edge of our seats and we have to and we realize that we have to fight for this continuously it's not i think it was reagan who said that the the fight for freedom is uh, is something that every generation will have to experience because as soon as we get complacent we get eaten by the bigger fish and that's uh that's what we want to avoid with this thing and just like weighing gold we need to verify our bitcoins that they are actually there uh, in order for them to have any usefulness at all uh as a tool for freedom. Yeah, well, I thought some slight disagreement. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good for disagreement. It's good for conversation. And it, it's a trade. Like if conversation is trade, in my opinion, like uh, we, we trade information with one another. And some of it is me finding it valuable to say something to you and also to find it even more to find it valuable to listen to you and vice versa, hopefully. Uh, and, and maybe let, let me hit, hit, let me hit uh, something else, the second part sure. of what before. Uh, and uh, of course, quite surprisingly, I think it was the first year that Mises Institute had a stall. And, and uh, I think it has turned, up be, turned out to be one of the most important institutions for the survival of the Austrian School of Economics. So I, I think it was one of the best, uh, which didn't seem obvious in the beginning. Uh, and most academics still are quite skeptical about the Mises Institute because they're strategy was not at all 
uh, academic, it was in a sense populist. It's, it's like spreading the works, uh, um, and uh, even within those, uh, this part of the Austrian school. So even though the the academics with a lesser reputation and more open uh, to, to popular understanding, they have turned out to be surprisingly skeptical about Bitcoin. Uh, of course, me in the beginning, I was also quite skeptical, uh, but uh, it's sometimes surprising how long it takes for some to learn. And most academic economists of the Austrian school still haven't understood Bitcoin. And, and uh, uh, I mean, it's one thing to be skeptical, but if you don't change your arguments over 10 years, um, uh, uh, I, I think it's sad. And I think it comes from the structure. So even uh, if you are fond of praxeology, but you're within that structure, which turns into a zero-sum game, uh, it's like you, you've got to protect some IBS uh, because that, that's your intellectual capital and uh, you got to ask permissions and you got to figure out uh, with whom am I on the board or not? Uh, and how does it taint my reputation that I got, got to use? And things like that, it becomes problematic. And then that it gets very different from the marketplace. Uh, and uh, it has been quite a surprise uh, to me that, that uh, even though Austrian School of Economics and Bitcoin uh, are such obvious uh, allies and, uh, and linked uh, and overlapping fields, uh, in a sense, the, the love and attraction has not been mutual. Yeah, this is this is so funny because this is something that is very present within the Bitcoin community itself as well. There's a lot of infighting in groups within even subgroups of of Bitcoiners that are, are bickering and arguing with one another instead of instead of taking the bigger fight against the the banks and the governments and whatnot. So so and and I noticed in in uh, praxe uh, that was one of my worries when I wrote a book about praxeology that I'm gonna get. Because praxeologists, maybe it has something to do with their Germanic nature, but they're very meticulous about about semantics and that you use the correct terms and that you leave nothing to to chance. So I try to do that as best as I can in the book, but I'm not really that kind of writer. I don't pretend to be Mises or Rothbard. I mean, these people were extremely eloquent with with their words and they chose them... uh, very carefully so so that's one of the risks i found with writing a praxeology book uh but but one of the but i'm not scared of getting the criticism for it because i will learn something from it like every time someone calls me out on something that where i'm wrong in in uh, in my praxeological thinking that's i i love that because i get to i get to learn something <laughs> and uh the the older you get, the 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 more ra- the rarer those experiences are. But still, I lo- I love being debunked. That's like one of the best feelings there is. And and I think proper scientific thinking should should embrace, you know, the destruction of your own ideas by a better idea. That's that's the only way forward. So uh, yes. Yes. ideas that, that- thrive when challenged, not when dog- if they're dogmatic, then we never get anywhere. And that's what we're trying to get away from here. That's the original meaning of the seminar, uh, where it comes from, or where it's got its uh, uh, in- influence on the academic world. It was the first the seminar at the University of Göttingen uh, that introduced this very critical approach, which is a friendly adversarial approach, uh, and which, of course, is part of the Salon tradition and, and the Mises circle and the Hayek circle is all about a friendly controversy. 
So you are friends, but because you are friends, you can call out each other and you don't repeat uh, each other. You don't have to be polite. You have to be polite. And, and, and the whole uh, concept of being polite comes, of course, from the court society. Uh, we are not friends. We are enemies, in fact, because politics is like in, in German, we say uh, is like friend, uh, enemy, and even versus party friend. Uh, because party, political party is always like the intrigues of who gets uh, from stage uh, uh, and so on. And it's the kind of bickering which uh, is representative of politics as a divisive mechanism uh, of, of zero-sum dynamics. Um, so it's this friendly adversity, uh, which I think is part of the scientific tradition. Uh, and for me, one of the most interesting and surprising experiences was uh, I, I studied uh, physics and then a bit later I started studying economics uh, and sociology and I was very surprised that in, in physics it was still, uh, the t at the time when I studied at least, uh, it was still when you called out the person uh, in front and you said, oh, there's a mistake, you would say, oh, thank you, thank you, I missed something. That's, uh, and it, it was a friendly uh, thing. Uh, and in economics, when I tried, when I did the same, I said, I, I, I think that's wrong. I think that argument doesn't make sense or can you explain it? It was not at all friendly. It was like shouting. I had shouting duels with the professors up front. They were really insecure. It seemed all about ideological uh, principles. Uh, and it's kind of the zero something where if you say it's wrong, I lose reputation and it's either you're right or I'm wrong. Uh, it's it's typically zero sum of thinking uh, uh, that you have there. So so I totally agree. Um, yeah, I think this is has to do with the hardness of the science. Like the hardest sciences, like logic and epistemology and mathematics and praxeology to a certain extent. That's where you get the most. Th that's where you know real constructive criticism is welcome the most. Where the further away you get from an actual proper science, I, I don't know what's like. Uh, critical race theory or something, uh, then you'll get shouted at instantly for for uh, rebelling against the current narrative. So yeah, but yeah. It, it doesn't come from the people; it comes from the structures. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, that bring about the, the kind of thought. I, I've been teaching at universities for a long time now, I think uh, fifteen years or more already. Mm -hmm. But I also teach uh, at a scholarium, uh, which is a private institution uh, that I founded with a colleague. Uh, yeah, that's your uh, Twitter handle, very, right? Scholarium. That's your Twitter handle. Yes, yes, those yeah. are my, my Twitter handle. Um, and uh, uh, it's only in German uh, for now, but that, that's my base in, in Vienna. It's one of the largest libraries as well on, on the Austrian school. Uh, and it, it's a uh, research educational institution. Um, and uh, the difference uh, is profound, of course. So when I teach, I always uh, foster controversy. So if everyone agrees, I bring up arguments and ideas to challenge that. Because uh, that's the only way to understand, to critically discuss something. At university, when I try to do the same, uh, some students really don't like it because they get confused. It's like then they'd ask, okay, but at the exam, like, what's the right answer? Uh, so <laughs> don't get how you can enter this controversy is like, oh, there's an argument for that. And you gotta understand that is like too complicated. You really want to have like tell off the right answers to everything, but right, of course, not in epistemological sense is like, how can I pass uh, the exam uh, sense, uh, getting my certificate, uh, which of course you have mainly for uh, at university. And it's uh, in, in a sense saddening. It is. And, uh, 
I would call that that kind of that kind of behavior. I'd call it bad hill to die on picking. But like there are very many bad hill to die on pickers out there that the pick fights with people they they ought not fight with, but ought to listen to and have engage in in fruitful debates with, rather than to just stop them at the door and shout them out. And in academia, the the things you see from these more fringe academic institutes and universities in the U.S. Uh, uh, and ev- and everywhere else where where people are completely expelled and ousted from the communities by, by mobs of people demonstrating that they're Nazis and everything when they're everything but. Uh, it's just depressing to see uh, how, and it, how institutions that are supposed to promote free thought and propel humanity forward just uh, go... go go into this state of uh, the complete opposite, dogmatic, just uh, judging of everyone. Uh, yeah, it's really depre- a depressing depressing uh, state of affairs. But that's, uh, but Bitcoin fixes that, right? Uh, I mean, in Bitcoin, merit matters. And th- it's the, about the only thing that matters. If your ideas are good, they are going to be... Um, um, people are going to take note of them and and you'll get your message out there somehow and you get to talk to all these other people because like all the barriers uh th- this is a completely new field praxeology is not but but bitcoin is uh so so that's a good way in for people who are who have interesting thoughts i mean try them out in there <laughs> that's my tip yes uh, i i agree that not only Bitcoin, but in a more general uh, sense, uh, money is of course underrated in its importance for those structures. It's, you, know, you can follow the money uh, and figure out why people behave the way they behave, not because they're determined to uh, be materialistic, it's because they have ends and money is a very universal means uh, to achieve your ends. Uh, that's why they care that much about it. Even uh, and and even those, or in particular those who say they don't care about money, usually uh, are uh, determined the most uh, uh, by a materialistic outlook. And you can explain lots of things uh, by that. It's like you can explain the state of economics by looking at what kind of jobs do economists get. Uh, how do they make money? It was the business model of being an economist, uh, and then you can figure out, of course, what does it mean to be. Um, academic functionary at the university and how do you have to work and function? You can explain a large part of the wokeness as a recent phenomenon by these kind of material incentives uh, happening there. Uh, so uh, I think in a sense, Bitcoin fixes this also means that like money is really crucial as an infrastructure. And if there are distortions there and, and, and people feel dependent on the fiat structure, then you get very bad outcomes. And we have seen that in, in academics. I mean, well, one of the ways to explain the crazy ideologies and, and political substitute religions that emerged in the 20th century and re- were replaced, of course, the tradition of the Austrian school uh, and, and uh, led to all kinds of craziness, uh, they emerged due to the top interests of academics. Uh, that's why German nationalism in, in its wild anti-Semitic radicalized way emerged in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the parts where the academics had to compete with uh, uh, people of different languages or were afraid they may have to compete. So a lot of, a lot of scandals were about what you need to use 
the Czech language in the Czech, in the Bohemian realms or not as a language of administration. Uh, uh, and then, of course, it was about the zero-sum logic of me not getting a job because someone else gets it, and it explains a lot of the uh, craziness of the universities uh, at the time. The show is also sponsored and produced by Consensus Network, the first Bitcoin-only publishing house. Consensus specializes in translations of Bitcoin books, and also publishes original titles in English and many other languages. Check out bitcoinbook.shop or consensus.network to see everything Consensus has to offer. We're also always looking for new contributors. Whether you have a book you want to publish, you want to help translate books into your native language, or you have some other way you want to get involved. So if you want to help spread the Bitcoin message, reach out to us by Twitter or email. Details are in the show notes. And finally, you can check out knutsvonholm.com for everything Knut, including some great Everything Divided by 21 Million merch and the Infinity Red Limited Edition wine. That's knutsvonholm.com for everything Knut. Uh, what else are we going to talk about? <laughs> Luke, you have any more questions for Rahim? Maybe this is a, a good place to wrap it up. I was going to say, uh, Rahim, the, the main thing I was wanting you to expand on was Scalarium. So I, I think since you covered that, that's that's great. So yeah, this might be a good place to stop. And if that's the case, uh, can, can you uh, tell our viewers and listeners a little bit more about how people can find you and uh, maybe also a little bit about uh, uh, your, your works, your books? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've written more than a thousand books, uh, but only a few have been translated to English and other languages. Uh, and also most of my work is in German. And the reason, of course, is uh, that the Austrian school had disappeared uh, in that part of the world and has become more uh, of an American tradition and a global tradition. Uh, still, and it's an important cultural uh, part uh, and it's an important part of the world and, and linking to this old uh, uh, Austrian school as a kind of, uh, I, I call it a late enlightenment tradition uh, in Austria, not like the bad top-down enlightenment uh, that we've seen, but a kind of bottom-up enlightenment, more akin to the Scottish enlightenment. Uh, uh, and I, I try to keep those traditions alive. Uh, and uh, I've created an institution for that. I call it Scholarium. And uh, of course, why I use complicated term, it's... Uh, uh, the connotation coming from the history of the university. University comes from Universitas Magistrorum et Scholarium, which is the community of the magistri, the teachers, and the scholars, the students. Uh, and uh, my experience at university was that uh, uh, the main focus is on the certifiers now. These are the magistri, the title, the, the magister, of course, uh, an academic title. Uh, so I wanted to focus on the university, the community of the people who want to learn. Um, and um, uh, that's scholarium comes from scholae, which is leisure. And uh, leisure means that you are not a slave, you are not dependent, you are in a sense free. And it's very much underrated how important money is for that. And that's why I like to saying that Bitcoin can be fuck you money. Uh, excuse my English. Uh, it's, uh, that's French. Thanks. Uh, and it, it's, uh, really also this, uh, Austrian, uh, enlightenment was driven by the wealth of, uh, um, uh, people that were able to say no, that wouldn't have need to become part of the feudal elite, part of the political system. 
one of the most important uh, German-speaking philosophers, uh, Wittgenstein, was a son of a steel magnate, uh, a steel uh, entrepreneur. And, and a lot of those people had leisure. Of course, leisure, uh, uh, it doesn't say what use you make of it. <laughs> you can do really bad things, and that's one of the challenge of wealth, uh, challenges of wealth. Uh, but uh, wealth allowed for culture as well due to that element of leisure. Uh, and that's why the link between money and uh, culture in the sense of exploring new heights uh, of human creativity and potential uh, is that important. Uh, and the old university emerges in its uh, more important tradition from Bologna and so on from the merchant families uh, and the young merchants who see uh, a usefulness in increasing their linguistic and analytical capacities. Uh, and it was part of the Renaissance, of course, and it was originally in Bologna, it's really merchant sons bending together, using the economies of scale of hiring the same teachers, uh, uh, which makes it more efficient economic to them. Uh, and uh, that's how scholarship was made possible by the wealth of merchants and then demanded uh, uh, or, or provided its usefulness in being able to understand the complexity of global contracts uh, uh, and global dealings uh, and the whole catalectic complexity, of course, one of the most difficult uh, sciences, catalectic one, uh, it's about the most complex problems uh, we can face, uh, we can really predict what's going on. We, contained with trying to understand what has happened and how it changes and what emerges uh, out of that. So uh, that's an allusion to that old tradition. And in the sense, uh, I, I'm a European, I, I foster, I take an interest in these historical links. Uh, I think it's, it's crucial to understand where we're coming from uh, and where traditions come from and what's good in traditions uh, uh, to be passed on. And I understand you have to be living uh, and be brought to life. And that's... Uh, uh, what I try to do uh, in my work, a bit to the detriment uh, of, of uh, uh, reaching a larger audience. I don't think that's uh, my task. Uh, I don't say it's best, but usually that's not the trade-off. I think change comes from tiny minorities. Uh, uh, it's not elites, uh, but it's in sense functional elites. Uh, people figure out something before other people and then become a role model. Um, uh, that's uh, why I think in a sense... Knowledge is not a scaling issue, it's a passing on uh, issue and, and the uh, positive sum a game of increasing that, uh, being able uh, to build on what others have built. Uh, and there are, I think, well, one of the best analogies is that we are all dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. That's like the original idea of the scholastic tradition uh, of passing on knowledge and, and standing on the shoulders and I try to stand on shoulders and not <laughs> fall too much uh, because there's always a risk in introducing of course new errors uh, into the world uh, so that's I try by teaching and writing to always have the very critical and practical perception so I want to understand day-to-day -day problems uh, of people, uh, I take an active interest in, in, in practical issues, uh, and that's what I try to do at, at the Scholarium. So it's not really teaching from textbooks, it's trying to figure out what's happening and looking at what other people have thought about similar problems in the past and looking from very, very different angles at it. And I don't think you can understand 
the Austrian School of Economics and its real importance of praxeology without looking at the other disciplines that feed into it, that uh, enrich each other, like history, psychology, political sciences, even theology. Uh, and then maybe more importantly, the practice merchants, entrepreneurs, uh, investors, um, and, and the bridging these gulfs between the intellectuals and the doers, uh, and uh, usually we overrate a bit too much uh, the intellectuals, in particular the prestigious uh, intellectuals. Uh, and uh, in economics, interestingly, if you look at it empirically, uh, if you look at economists and the track records, and then you try to even correct for how well-known they are, you figure out uh, they have a really, really bad track record. track record. It's better to roll the dice than follow the advice of economists. And the more you go for the better known economists and with the more academic credentials, the worse it gets. So there's even a negative correlation <laughs> within the discipline. Uh, and yeah, in that sense, it's useless. It's worse than useless uh, as a scientific tradition if it's played out like that as one discipline, as discipline of social engineering, where know-it-alls model and predict what's going to happen uh, and I try to keep alive a very different approach uh, to that. Uh, and uh, I'm glad for everyone that who joins that fighting, keeping alive uh, that very different approach to understanding a society and cooperation. Yeah, I, I want to add one thing here so that we so that I don't forget to talk to you about it in Prague. And that is that this Praxeology book is going to be turned into a course on MRLI's app. Uh, which is like a, a cross between Udemy and uh, Substack, but powered by the Lightning Network. And the plan is to have it as a part of a master's degree core, uh, a master's degree in self-sovereignty. So that's uh, where fuck your money also comes in, of course, and how to run your own node, you know, how to maybe start your own farm at a <laughs> no, no, no man's land territory somewhere and how, basically how to how to be self-sovereign and uh, maybe you'd like to contribute to that master's degree somehow and to do a deep and uh, an even deeper praxeology uh, dive. Uh, so we should talk about that in Prague and I'm looking forward so much to meeting you there and to everything that's going on there. So uh, thank you very much for coming on the show, Raheem, and uh, see you in Prague in a couple thank of weeks. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to seeing you again. Yeah. The best from Vienna. Likewise, thanks again, Raheem. And this has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for listening.